when I went to our parents, my stepmother said, that is what sisters do. You just don't understand because you're an only child and you have been overindulged. Hey, Dan, welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Each week, a storyteller joins me, Sean, to tell one of their stories and then break it down. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, to craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories personal stories, grit stories. We are in the middle of season number two, dedicated entirely to women and their stories, and I am thrilled to have Tracy Starin join me on the podcast today. Tracy lives up in Queens, New York, which I am very fond of because I was born there and live there. So yes, Tracy is here. To our listeners, I want to thank you for your support. If you'd like to help us out, well, continue listening. Let other people know about this podcast. That would be wonderful. And if you listen on Apple, rating, reviewing, and or subscribing also helps. It lets people find the podcast more easily. Check the show notes for information on upcoming classes and events, and you can reach out to us by email, hello at storygrit.com. You can learn more about Grit on Facebook. We have a group and a page as well as a YouTube channel if you want to check some of our videos out. All right, Tracy Starin, let's dive in. What's going on, Tracy? How are you? I'm fine. I'm the same. I'm always at meh. <laughs> I'm just, that's just the way people know me. They're like, nah, he's never that good. <laughs> How are you doing? Okay. I'm doing okay. Yeah. 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 Fully vaxxed and, and out in the world a little bit. Same. Vaxxed and out. Nice weather. And my question for you before you tell this story, do you remember when you first crafted this particular story that you will tell for us fairly soon? I do. It was early in the pandemic when we first started to do online shows. I realized that I could either participate in online shows and start to write new stories or spend God only knows how long doing nothing at all. Right. So that's, I started doing this. It was something that I had been kind of percolating for a little while. I, I knew I wanted to do something about it. And so I put it together. So it's probably about a little over a year old. Gotcha. Now, Tracy lives in, uh, in New York, yeah. in Queens. This is the borough that I was birthed in back in the day. And I did live there for some time. I have fond memories of Queens. Uh, and Tracy lives near my old accountant. <laughs> I just love that because it's not a part of Queens. Like when people think of Queens, right? They'll think of, like if you're in New York, Queens, you're like, oh, Forest Hills or Astoria, Astoria or Sunnyside, or maybe right. even uh, what's the area a little bit further out from Sunnyside on the seven train that a lot of people live in now? Like Jackson Heights. Yeah, exactly. But they don't think of like Maspeth. No, no. Nobody thinks of Maspeth. It's just yeah. a little residential neighborhood. There's no, no tourism touches Maspeth. There's right. nothing here that 
people would ever come to see except the Long Island Expressway. Everybody who's ever gone from LaGuardia Airport to Manhattan has passed through Maspeth. On the highway. But that's it, just through Maspeth, which, <laughs> which when they built it, they had to cut Maspeth in half. Oh, okay. All right. Now it is very, very expensive to live here, which surprised a lot of the people around here. It's very, very expensive to live here now. You And you wonder where all the poor or working class people go. Where do, do they wonder, go? You do wonder that. And a lot of people in story are flat ass broke that we know. Not you necessarily. I'm just saying a lot because story doesn't pay shit. And there's such talent. What a, what a weird, like so much talent for so little money. It's incredible. You penned this story. You crafted this story last year sometime. I actually don't always hear the stories in advance. And in this case, I haven't, which I like. I get, it's new for me. It's fresh for me. And then when Tracy's done telling it, uh, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to break it down. And then we're going to get on with our lives after that. <laughs> is that cool? Yeah, that's All great. Right. So the stage is your whenever, whenever you're ready, Tracy, I will stop talking and listen to you. Okay, thank you. I remember when they got that picture and I always hated it. We went up to the Catskills for the weekend because my father was always trying to include me in things that he did with his new wife and her children. And if you met her, you wouldn't have thought that she was the mother of three children because she wasn't warm and motherly. She was cold and standoffish and kind of sharp. And she always made me feel like I was a guest in their house. In fact, an unwelcome guest rather than the daughter of the person who paid the mortgage on their five bedroom, four bathroom mini mansion. She had all of these rules that I was constantly, because I wasn't there very often, which she made sure of, I was always getting them wrong. One of her rules was you weren't allowed to come downstairs for breakfast until you had washed your face, brushed your teeth, and gotten dressed. And so when I would come at the age of four, bounding down the stairs in my pajamas for breakfast, she would point back up the stairs and march me back up there to wash my face and brush my teeth and get dressed. You know, we don't come down the stairs in our pajamas, she would say. And then she would add something in there about how my mother had overindulged me because she let me come to the breakfast table in my pajamas. And she had three children. Her two oldest children were always very nice to me, but they were older teenagers. And so they weren't around a lot because they already had lives. Her youngest daughter Lisa was closer to my age, but still about four years older than me. And they were always trying to make us hang out together because we were closer in age. And Lisa wanted no part of me. And she made it pretty obvious. Like when she would steal my stuffed animal and hide it until I cried. And then if I went to tell them, my stepmother, Lynn, would say, that's just how sisters behave. You just don't know that because you're an only child and your mother overindulged you. Or when my stepsister, Lisa, locked me in a closet and I screamed until I was hoarse. When I went to our parents, my stepmother said, that is what sisters do. You just don't understand because you're an only child and you have been overindulged. 
And I would look to my father for some kind of help, but he always deferred to Lynn and Lynn always voted against me. And when I stayed over, which wasn't that frequent, I slept on a rollaway cot in Lisa's room. Even when Lisa wasn't there for the weekend, I wasn't allowed to sleep in her bed. So Lynn and I had a tough relationship and I was just a little kid. So off we went to the Catskills for the weekend because they had friends who were also going to the Catskills that weekend. And back in the 80s, what would happen was the adults would spend time together and they would send the children off. They would put money in our hands and say, go find the arcade or go swim in the pool. And they would just give us the run of the resort and not really see us for whole days at a time. It was benign neglect. And so they sent me off with my stepsister who was with her friends and they wanted no part of me. So they spent the whole weekend ditching me. And I spent the whole weekend running around the resort, trying to catch up with them because otherwise I was completely alone and periodically running around the hotel, looking for Lisa and her friends. I would run into my father and the other adults. And I would go up to him and tell him that Lisa didn't want to hang out with me. And I was all by myself. And he'd say, Oh, of course she wants to hang out with you. Lisa loves you. She thinks of you like a sister. And he'd go into his pocket and take more money out and put it in my hand. He'd say, go find the arcade. Because what I really wanted was to hang out with my father. That's why I would go there for the weekends. I already didn't see him enough, but what absolutely was not going to happen What never would have happened back in the 80s was that an adult was going to break off from the other adults and whatever adults did back then, drink martinis or something, I don't know, and hang out with a kid. It just wasn't done. And so I spent the better part of that weekend running around the hotel by myself, just trying to catch up with the older kids who were ditching me. And on one of my passes through the lobby, my stepmother, Lynn, was sitting and having her portrait painted. And she had a big smile on her face and her head thrown back like she was laughing. And all I could think about, even as a little kid, was the wolf and what big teeth you have, the better to eat you with, my dear, because she had her big pearly white teeth bared. And I guess it was supposed to be in a smile, but to me, it just looked like a snarl. And each time I passed the lobby for hours, she was still sitting there having her portrait painted. And by the end of the night, it was done. And it was this enormous, this huge painting. I don't remember how they got it home. I don't remember if it came home with us or if it wound up home later. But it eventually went up on the wall in the living room, the room with the vaulted ceilings, and it hung grand piano. It's enormous picture of Lynn in a huge ornate gold frame, the kind of thing you would see hanging in a library or a museum. And I just loathed that picture. I disliked the picture almost as much as I disliked her. Now, Not very long after that, maybe a year, my father gently explained to me that 
when he brought me to the house, things were going to look a little bit different, but not to be concerned because he and Lynn were just taking some time apart. And I didn't quite understand what that meant because I was still really, I was under seven years old, I think. But when I got to the house, there was stuff gone. A lot of stuff was gone. And each time I visited after that, which was now more frequently, more stuff was gone. Personal things were gone, like pictures off the walls and clothes out of closets and pillows and things like that. The kids' rooms were basically cleaned out. The kitchen table was still there. The couches in the den were still there. The piano was gone. That had been hers before they got married. But that portrait still hung. And when the whole house was cleaned out and he gently explained, except for his bedroom, and he gently explained to me that they were now, she wasn't going to live there anymore. The picture was still there. And there seemed to be kind of a pall over the house. And I swore that I could still hear her yelling at me when I came bounding down the stairs in my pajamas because there was nobody to tell me not to. And I would shield my eyes when I had to walk past it because I swear she was looking at me. My father sat me down one day and explained to me that that talk that parents have with kids when their parents get divorced about how it's not their fault and things may seem different now. And I interrupted him and I said, how long is that picture going to stay here? And he said, you don't like that picture? I think it's nice. And I said, no, I hate that picture. I've always hated that picture. And you know what? I always hated her too. And I'm glad she's gone. And the next time I came, the portrait was gone and he never brought her up again. And the hall that seemed to have been over the house was broken. And it wasn't long after that, that there was the new lady in the picture and she was much nicer. I come from my parents split when I was young and there was pictures, portraits, family pictures, everyone's smiling. And you're like, nah, <laughs> that's not really reflective of at all of what was going on. All right, cool. Thank you for telling that story with me and with us, uh, Tracy. That was last year. You told that you first told that one. One thing that's so cool about this stuff is that you get to learn things about people that you probably wouldn't just through the story, yeah. right? Like I get to know stuff yeah. about you and you get to know stuff about other people. And sometimes like in this story, I know I have a lot in common or some stuff in common. It's kind of cool. Do you remember how you first got involved with this kind of storytelling, the personal narrative live? I do. I used to have a lot of little hobbies and things that I that I like to do. And then I lost my vision in 2006. And all a lot of those hobbies just went away because when you can't see, there's a lot of little arty things, little detailed things that you can't do anymore. I was really missing doing things like 
being creative and I was looking for something to do and I didn't know what it was that I could do. And I knew that I, I, I knew that I, I'm not a stand-up comic. I know that I'm not that. And I know I'm not an actor and I'm not a musician, but I felt like there was something like that. And I didn't know what, and one night we were at this little venue in Queens, QED, and I, it was a storytelling show. And I said to my husband, I think that I can do that. And then I didn't do anything about it. And then one afternoon at that same club, we were coming out of QED when a woman named Julie Polk was walking in and she stopped me and she said, Hey, why don't you stick around and hear some stories or maybe tell one yourself? And I said, I- I've never told the story. She said, well, then this is the place for you. It was an open mic. And I couldn't stay that particular day, but she said, we're here every month. Come back. Mm. And I did. I came back the next month and that was four years ago. You remember the story? I do. It was the story about how my best friend got us tickets to a, a Pearl Jam show. Very difficult to get tickets to a Pearl Jam show. And then he gave my ticket away to somebody else. <laughs> so you've told the story now three times, the one you shared just now. This might sound like a weird question, but you know, I'm a weird guy. Do you like this story? And do you like the way you've sort of structured it? Yeah, I, I think so. But I, you know, nothing is ever finished because it's not published. So the next time I tell it, it could be different. If I tell it for a different show that has a different theme, I might restructure it. Nothing is ever done. So I I like it like this, but it could also change. Yeah. I like it too. I think it was really well done. Thank you. You know, one of the new litmus tests I have, it's very, very straightforward for stories now is, do I want to hear the next thing out of your mouth? Like, I think that's a really good way to gauge like, you know, all right, it's not that easy to do. It's it's actually really hard to keep people's attention, right? Yes. Like if I actually want now, of course, in this setting, I'm gonna listen. I'm not gonna stop somebody. I, I wanted to hear what was next, which I think is hard to do. I'm I'm really intrigued by different people's processes. Some people never write anything down, some people write every word down. You know, some people have this process or that process. Do you have something, a sort of way of doing this from A to Z that gets you to where it's like, all right, I'm mostly done? So sometimes I do start out with some notes, but, you know, I don't work from notes because I can't see them. So I can't tell from notes, but mm-hmm. I'll start down just to organize thoughts. I'll, I'll, I might start writing down some notes. I make the story the way it is, the way I put together the story, how it's going to be performed. I have to say it out loud the way it looks written may not be I like how I like the way it's going to sound out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. So the written is really just a sketch. And then I say it out loud and I, I may move pieces around. I may change the language a little bit. When I first started out, I used to memorize what I was going to say. And I do that less now. I, I'll memorize like points that I want to hit and the order of it. And I leave the exact language to what comes out of my head at the time. So it sounds less rehearsed and fresher. Yeah. I'm kind of similar. I'm trying to figure out ways to memorize less, but for me, I have to, I have to see it. And I don't know why I just have to craft it in that way. I'd like that to change because it's more time consuming. When you think about four years ago when you started and now, what do you think are the biggest things that have changed in how you both craft and tell stories? And presumably if you've gotten better, like what's the stuff that you figured out? That Maybe you I've gotten better. Maybe, right, right. I'm much less terrified. I still get stage fright, but I'm, it's less terror 
than it was when I first got on stage because a storytelling audience is always with you. They mm. want to hear what you want to say. They're on your side. So if I forget a piece or I stumble for a minute, nobody's going to come with a hook and pull me off the stage. It's not the end of everything. So I'm much less terrified. I also, you know, I just in general, I learned some things about the, the mechanics of crafting. You want to start in a scene and you want the action to dictate what comes next rather than piling on endless exposition, things like that. Like you said, you want people to want to hear the next thing out of your mouth. Mm. And there are some stories that I rejected because I realized it's four minutes of exposition to get to one minute of a story. That's not really a story. Right. Not really a story. All right. So now less terrified, which makes sense, right? I think you're right about the storytelling community. Maybe different than, let's say, the stand-up comedy. Yeah. Community, yes. Where it's different. People aren't paying with the expectation of make me laugh. Right. Nice, nice, nice bonus if that happens in a storytelling event. A little laughter is nice, but it's not like that energy. Yeah. All right. So you brought up something in which 40 years ago, if you had done it, it might have been a little different. If you crafted this exact story or this this story four years ago, maybe you maybe you wouldn't have started in a scene. Right. Right. Or had as many scenes or or connected them. So let's talk about, if you can, the 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 scenes in this story. Because I think that they are they're really well done. And I think for people who are, whether they're newer to this stuff or not, scenes are so important, right? The movie in your mind type thing. Right. It's not an essay. And what's the, one of the right. things that makes it not an essay? Well, shit's happening. Things are happening. Something's it's not, happening. I'm not making a commentary on it. It's, I'm showing what's happening. Right. How many scenes are in this story? Because I want people to know exactly what a scene is and is not. Six, maybe like what's scene one? So, scene one would be being a guest in their house and the things that happen in the house. Like, she won't let me come down the stairs, she points me back up the stairs. My stepsister locking me in the closet. I feel like that's all part of the same scene. Another scene would be in the resort at the Catskills, chasing my stepsister around the resort relentlessly trying to catch up with her and her and her friends just ditching me relentlessly. It's mostly chronological, if I remember, other than the very beginning, right? You sort of start somewhere else. Right. And then you go chronological, their house, resort. Where do we go from there? I think the next scene is me seeing her getting her portrait painted in the lobby. And then I think after that is them hanging the picture over the piano in the house. After that is my father, is things starting to disappear from the house. And my father explaining to me that they're taking some time away, but the picture is still there. Right. And then I think the last scene is probably everything is gone from the house. And he's telling me how now they're apart. And finally, I, I tell him that I, I don't like the picture and I don't like her and I'm glad that she's gone. And then the picture is gone. So you sort of start and end and not with the same thing, but the same idea of a picture or a portrait. Right. Which feels good for the audience. It's kind of like satisfying. Sort of feels like it's full circle. I always think of scenes that something's happening, right? There's shit's happening. And I think they usually, I'm trying to think of other things that like all, or at least most scenes have in common. They're set somewhere. Their house, resort, 
another house. It's a location. And I think you did a good job of giving us a sense of the time, right? You were young. Yeah, early 80s. Early 80s. Your way of describing the Catskills was spot on. It's so true. The adults, what the fuck were they doing? We don't have and no idea. They're no, doing something. I have no idea what Maybe orgies. Doing. We don't know. I don't know. A key party, eating beef wellington, drinking right. martinis. martinis. No idea. None of them interacted with us. You know, we went to the Catskills, of course, because we were Jewish and it was the law. You had to go to the Catskills. Yeah. Right. And the kids would play. And that's great if you're a kid who's popular, but it sucks if you're not. Right. I remember going, I think, did I go, were we Catskills or Poconos or whatever the hell it was? There were these games. A lot of time was spent in the arcade. The arcade. I hate to say this. I'm not giving anyone ideas, but it's like a goldmine for some sort of sick serial killer child. Absolutely. Like nobody gave a shit. Whatever. Are there seven kids, eight kids, whatever. One of them is just wandering somewhere or maybe they've been kidnapped. Exactly. If one of us had gone missing, nobody would have known for days. Like maybe two days later. Oh, you haven't seen? Okay. (laughs) So funny. Well done. Yes, I enjoyed the seed. I I find that I've tried to do that more myself, right? And with not making these things all exposition, but the challenge with exposition, with certain details you want to include is like how and when to include them. And you and a lot of good storytellers do this thing where it's not like it's a scene and then exposition and scene. You work it in, right? Yeah. So you're in a scene and I almost think of it as like you're pausing or freezing a scene, going out here a little bit to give you a little more information that gives you context or maybe it raises the stakes or whatever. And then you hop right back into wherever you were. Yeah. You know, that's so satisfying. You don't lose us. Thank you. Know? You know, because a lot of the stories that I tell take place in the eighties or the nineties because that's when I was young and a lot of things happened. There are a lot of storytellers who are too young to understand anything that I'm saying. Uh, so I think uh, it's important to mention that I looked something up in a phone book right. that was three inches thick and I kept it on top of my refrigerator. Or I had to go find a payphone because cell phones had not been invented yet. Uh, do you have any favorite storytellers? Yeah. I mean, let's see. Rhea Spencer is one of my favorite storytellers. I could listen to her all day long. Scott Whitehair is one of my favorite storytellers. He's fantastic. Julie Baker is one of my favorite. Joanne Pelletier. She's great. Victoria Reeves from Chicago. She's fantastic. There are a lot of people that I love to... Ronna Levy. I love Ronna Levy's stories. Is there one or two things that they all have in common that kind of make them really good for you to listen to? The, what we do is tell true personal stories. Yet sometimes you hear stories that do sound kind of fantastical. Um, and I think the storytellers that I mentioned and and a handful of others, Mark Abbott in New York, he's one of my favorites too. Adam Selps is one of my favorites. I think they tell stories that do sound real, honest, they're never the heroes of their own story. And they do always make you want more. They Mm. do always leave you wanting more. I like that. I like that idea. Not the hero. I mean, you could define hero. Like if you're the person crafting it and telling it, some people would say that is by definition, like you're the hero of your story. But I think I know what you mean. Like It's not self-aggrandizing. And also 
I think one of the things that people tend to do is they want to tell a story about an amazing thing that happened to them, right? But really great storytellers can tell a great story about a tiny moment in their lives. Yep. And that is, that's a gift. Totally. It is a gift. You're right. I always think the people that lean on those fantastical stories, I think this at a bit, a bit of a disadvantage because they don't flex their muscles. They can lean on it a little bit. You can get away with it a little bit more because you scaled the mountain or you almost right. drown. And so, yeah, we're going to probably be a little bit more like, okay, that's different, but you can only do that for so long. Well, you can't just wait boring. for fantastic things to happen to you because fantastic things just don't happen that often. <laughs> By definition, that's correct. They wouldn't be fantastic. You're going to wind up with like eight stories of your whole life. Then you, you know you need more maybe than that. Eight. Maybe like maybe two. right. Maybe two. You know, every story can't be your wedding and the birth of your first child. So, and honestly, who, no one gives a shit about your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> they don't care about your wedding. Great. It's, We're great. We're so happy for you. We it's are. true. We just don't give a shit about your wedding. Well, I don't tell stories about my wedding because yeah. it's not that interesting to you know anybody who, who is. Because we me. don't care. We don't care. Right. It's no, hang on, Josie. There are like 11 people that probably really care. That's why you have friends and family. Maybe. But maybe, <laughs> maybe. And they're just being nice. But most yeah. people, and this is broadly speaking, an audience of mostly strangers. Cool. Great. You got yeah. married. I'm sure he's an awesome fucking guy. Now what? But unless something caught fire, you know. <laughs> Is there anything about the process uh, of how you do all this that you want to improve upon? I'm a real back back in the corner kind of person where I wait until way too long until it's due. I would really like to get better at being more measured with my preparation and less frantic about it. And I, I think that I would like to get to a place where I'm more satisfied more often with my stories and and less tinkering with them even after i've told it for sure yeah i bet there's a lot of tellers that feel like oh man this could be better this area could be tighter but that i think that's probably a sign of you giving a shit do you have any tips and some of them have already come up one tip that has not come up probably geared more for newer tellers, sort of a pro tip or a hack or however you want to call it when they think about trying to craft this stuff. The most important thing is don't wait until you're ready. Just do it. You have to get on stage and do it. Go to an open mic, go to many open mics and get on stage and do it. Find something about your life that you want to talk about, write, write five minutes about it and get on stage and do it. It doesn't matter if it's not good. That's what open mics are for. You'll figure it out. But yeah, start in scene, keep the action moving, write a lot of scenes, use you know words that ignite your senses, take people in and out, do time jumps, anything that keeps the story moving. Mm. And don't spend a lot of time explaining yourself because then you're not in a story, you're in an essay. We've all had plenty of essays growing up. We're like, we're done. And make sure it's about you. But the other thing that I would say is if you are really not comfortable telling a story, then don't tell it just because you think it's what other people want to hear. Like if you don't want to tell stories about your drunken drug days of of your youth, then don't do that. If you don't Mm -hmm. want to tell sex stories, then don't do that. If you don't want to tell stories about your dysfunctional family because it makes you uncomfortable, don't do that. Mm. Tell things that are 
honest, that are hard to talk about, but don't tell things that make you uncomfortable. There's not a reason to do that. Not everybody tells stories about everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good point. Several good points. And one in particular is if you, if you go up and you tell a story, let's say at an open mic, it may not be good. However, that's defined, but you're going to live. Nothing's going to happen to you if your story is going to happen. Most people and probably no promises all are going to appreciate that you did it. And even if it feels weird and awkward, you'll probably can't guarantee feel good about the fact that you did it. Find a show with a host that you like Mm -hmm. that is kind and do that show. Done. And if you're in Europe, because that's what I'm looking at behind Tracy's head (laughs) and, and Western Asia, Maybe there's one there too. It doesn't have to be in the United States even. We're going international. It's uh, true. What, I did a, I did a Canadian show. I am international now. You're international. I have no more questions. I so appreciate you taking the time to tell the story and to break it down as we did. And you know how these podcasts have to end. There's one word and they always end the same way. You want to say it with me on three? Ready? Yeah. One, two, three. Boom. Boom. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Tracy up in Maspeth, Queens, my city of New York. Thanks for joining me, telling that story, and breaking it down. Check the show notes for upcoming classes and events. We'd love to see you at one or perhaps more than one of them. They're a lot of fun. Okay, that's all for episode number 35. Boom.